The Monsters That Made Us is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For all things movies, music, media, monsters, and more, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Today we're heading back to the town of Mapleton, Massachusetts, which is once again plagued by a string of murders caused by the ancient mummy Karas, previously believed to have been destroyed in a house fire. This time, the aging high priest of Arkham has tasked a man by the name of Yusuf Bey with locating Karas as well as his forbidden love, the Princess Ananka, and bringing them both back to Egypt. But with Ananka having been reincarnated as a beautiful young Egyptian woman and the body count continuing to rise, Bay will have to resist his own temptations as local law enforcement begins to close in. Break out those tana leaves and join us as we discuss The Mummy's Ghost. To a new world of gods and monsters. Listen to them. Children of the night. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! You're crazy to know who I am, aren't you? I'll show you who I am and what I am! You're insane. I tell you I killed a wolf, a plain ordinary wolf! By studying these and other species, we add to our knowledge of how life evolved, how it adapted itself to this world. Welcome to the Monsters That Made Us, the podcast where we celebrate the spooktacular characters in films in the Universal Studios classic monster series. Today we're talking about 1944's The Mummy's Ghost. I'm the Invisible Dan Cologne, and joining me as always is my co-host and part-time Egyptologist, Monster Mike Manzi. Here I am in the flesh, not a ghost. Not yet. Well, Karis is back, Mike. Uh, we're now on our fourth Mummy film, and it, it's the third of four featuring Karis. Of course, the first featured an entirely different Mummy, but we've been on like the Karis train for three movies now, yep. and we still have one more to go. Hard to believe, man. This thing is like the Terminator. He's going to show up next time, like holding his own head, jumping on one foot, like the Black Knight and, you know, Monty Python. Yeah, definitely. The Mummy's Ghost more or less picks up where the Mummy's Tomb left off, but with some minor changes, most notably that the Temple of Karnak has inexplicably become the Temple of Arkham. And Andoheb, the high priest who died in the previous film has somehow returned from the dead just to get us back up to speed before sending a new emissary to the United States. Now, all the continuity issues aside, the, the Mummy's Ghost may be the leanest, meanest film we've encountered to date. At an even 60 minutes, it gets in, raises a bunch of hell, and gets out before we really have a chance to get bored. Now, I know we're going to get into the nitty gritty of everything here, but I just want to say up front that I really admire the, the efficiency of this movie. Now, wh whatever issues we may have otherwise, this one's definitely not wasting our time. So what were your thoughts coming into this one? Had you seen this one? I assume it was new. Yeah, so this was a new one for me. Hadn't seen this one before. I didn't know what to expect. Didn't know how they were going to bring Karis back. But yeah, there's some good stuff here. As usual, as always, I love the ending. I can't wait to talk about the ending. I mean, the yep. endings of the last few movies have just been stellar. You know, yep. so cool and different and taking chances. But like, 
Dan, like, I mean, for the most part, I feel like I've seen this movie twice before. Like, yeah. I really, I really like how they are sticking to certain continuities, I guess you could say. It's a little messed up, but for the most part, it's like there, like there's a lore now. I wasn't expecting this sort of pick up in this town again. That's kind of fun and interesting. But for the most part, it feels like the first half feels like catching everybody up with what's happened before. And the second half feels like we're sort of speeding through a remake of the first one. It kind of feels a little like Rob Zombie's Halloween in that regard, I guess. Sure, yeah. yeah. And, and that's not entirely bad, but like you said, it's super short, not a lot of new stuff in here from what I can tell. Uh, some good stuff. We get Peanut the dog almost fighting the mummy. And John Carradine's great. So, I mean, there's going to be a lot of fun stuff to talk about. But, I mean, I just have to say, like, I, I won't, I won't try to mention it a lot again, but I, I was pretty underwhelmed for the most part. It kind of plays like a greatest hits of, of Karas, you know, like it, it yeah. hits all the major plot points, including like the recap of how he came to be his whole backstory with the princess Ananka, which changes a little bit here. But like the beginning of this one is very much like the beginning of the last mummy film we watched. And at this point, it seems as, the, as though they're just trying to put Karas in situations where he can just kill people. Right. And I think the body count in this is somewhere between four or five, you know, so for a 60 minute movie, you're getting a kill like every 12 minutes on average right something like that yeah and like i I still love the mummy like the mummy's ruthless you know like you try to control the mummy and then you know it happens again in this one you know you sort of like call an audible and the mummy snuffs it out and he's like he's not standing for it but i like the mummy as a monster i think the mummy looks fantastic in this even his shuffling and all that kind of thing there's sort of like that creeping crawling fear kind of like that it follows comes Mm -hmm. to mind Mm -hmm. a lot nowadays when i watch the mummy so it's still got a lot of that going for it it's funny that you mentioned in follows because there's these wide shots where you can see a potential victim and then you see Karis in the other side of the frame and you're just kind of like waiting for him to attack. And so, yeah, I think that's very apt comparison. But for a 60 minute movie that kind of retreads old ground, there's no repurposed footage here. I mean, this is 60 mm. minutes of completely brand new footage. They've adjusted the lore a little bit. You could dock at points for originality here, I suppose. But I think, at least in my estimation, considering the length of the film and we kind of get all the stuff we want from a Chorus mummy movie, I can see why you'd be underwhelmed. And I'm certainly not going to say that this is one of the better mummy films we've seen. It's certainly not the most ambitious and it doesn't really take any risks whatsoever. So, you know, I kind of get what I want out of a a Karis Mummy movie in this like short, quick 60 minutes. So I think there's something to be said for that as well. It's actually, you know, when you think about it, it is sort of the perfect primer. Like if you haven't seen a Mummy movie before, it's sort of like the perfect one to watch because it's almost like a Jurassic World or something like a requel, like uh, before it's time. Like it's just catching everybody up with everything that's happened before and trying to put like more of a modern spin on everything. You know, we're not in Egypt. It's happening in America. These are younger kids that go to college. It's not like they're professors out in the field or anything. And it's still able to maintain all of the Egyptology stuff Mm -hmm. and all of the hieroglyphics. And, you know, we're talking about Amun-Ra and I'm expecting him to to mention Khonshu at some point because I'm all into Moon Knight right now. You know, so so I'm still digging the core of, of Mummy, no matter sort of what they're doing with it. I mean, he's definitely one of the more underrated of the Universal Monsters, and I think that you hit the nail right on the head in in that this is a good primer for somebody who had never seen a Mummy movie, right? It doesn't really ask too much of a a new viewer. It's short. I mean, there there are episodes of of Game of Thrones that are longer than this. You know, so yeah, if you've never seen an old Mummy movie, maybe this is the one you introduce. It is pretty self-contained, even though we do have some characters that carry over from the previous film. So yeah, I mean, all things considered, I have a hard time ripping this one apart just for 
that reason. Okay. So you know what? Let's let's get into this. I didn't find a whole lot of like juicy backstage gossip kind of stuff, but I did find a couple of fun anecdotes in my research for this one. Lon Chaney pranking it up again. So a lot of the stories that I discovered have to do with Lon Chaney, some of it to do with the makeup and the uh, his costume. So The Mummy's Ghost was produced by Ben Pivar, who we've seen before. He's kind of like the Universal's mummy producer at this time. We've already talked about him in previous films, so no need to go like super in-depth there. We've got Reginald LeBorg in the director's seat. Now, this man, I had not really heard of Reginald LeBorg before this, or at least not looked into his career. This guy was a hustler, okay? He began his career in the mid-30s as an extra at Paramount and MGM, eventually working his way up to staging opera sequences and then working on second unit stuff before cranking out some band shorts for Universal. The Mummy's Ghost was only his second horror film ever, and he would eventually go on to make a name for himself as a prolific horror director with credits including The Black Sleep in 1956, Voodoo Island in 57, and Diary of a Madman in 63, just to name a couple. He often worked with the likes of Lon Chaney Jr., of course, in this film, as well as Boris Karloff, Bela Lugosi, John Carradine, Basil Rathbone, Vincent Price, Evelyn Ankers, and for the Ed Wood fans, he also worked with Tor Johnson. Nice. Like this guy became kind of a go-to horror director. Wow, cool. Getting hired to direct The Mummy's Ghost was kind of a simple twist of fate for him. As he tells it, quote, The first feature I made at Universal was an overgrown short musical, She's For Me. It had no stars in it, just their stock players. I was supposed to get a comedy afterwards because I had some comedy in She's For Me and Universal liked it very much. Ben Pavar, an associate producer at Universal, had a director assigned to The Mummy's Ghost. I don't know who the man was, but I think he had an accident or something and they had nobody there right then to take his place. Pavar seemed to like me and he said, How about reading the script? And so that's how he came to direct The Mummy's Ghost. You know, we think of directors as like the stars of these movies sometimes. That wouldn't happen until, you know, the late 60s and 70s and and onward. But like at this time, you got to remember that directors for the most part were just kind of like, couldn't get that guy. All right, you get this guy. You know, there were very few auteur directors at this time. So I think that's pretty cool. Now, the screenplay was written by Griffin J., Henry Sucher, and Brenda Weisberg, based on a story by Griffin J. and Henry Sucher. So J. and Sucher had both worked on mummy films in the past, The Mummy's Hand and The Mummy's Tomb, respectively. But Brenda Weisberg was born in Russia before for immigrating to the U.S. when she was a young girl. She moved to Hollywood in the 40s where she wrote genre films for Universal, RKO, and Columbia. The Mummy's Ghost is her only Universal Monsters credit, but she did also write the 1944 inner sanctum noir thriller Weird Woman starring Lon Chaney and Evelyn Ankers and was directed by Reginald LeBorg. So she's in good company. The Mummy's Ghost was a very short production. It began shooting on August 23rd, 1943 and wrapped on September 1st. Ten days Wow. They shot this movie in 10 days, which is... That's like Roger Corman school style. Like, that's amazing. And, you know, you already invoked the name of Ed Wood already. Right? Like I said, I couldn't really find a whole lot of, like, juicy stuff backstage. And it probably has something to do with the fact that this was a very quick 10-day production. So we can just roll right into the cast here. We've, of course, got Lon Chaney Jr. back as Chorus. We've talked about him at length over several episodes, particularly on our Wolfman episode. However, like I said, there were a couple anecdotes I learned while researching, and I thought they'd be fun to talk about. And they also deal with Jack Pierce's makeup effects. So, of course, Jack Pierce still on uh, at Universal to do these makeup effects. One story I read regarding 
regarding Lon Chaney's time in the Mummy film. So this is sort of a general story, not just specifically with this film. So this came from actor William Phipps, who had appeared with Chaney in the 1955 Kirk Douglas film, The Indian Fighter. According to Phipps, quote, He told me how he had a tube that went from the container all the way up through those bandages up to his mouth, and he just sucked on that vodka all day long. Isn't that funny? He could just push that tube out of the way to one side when they were working, and then when they weren't, he'd pull it out and suck on it. That's crazy. So I thought that was really funny. Now, another thing I learned is that, at least with the HD transfer of The Mummy's Ghost, this may may not be as obvious in DVD or VHS transfers, but in the HD Blu-ray, you can see what is called the, quote, Evelyn Anchors strap, which is a sort of harness that helped Chaney carry his female victims when he was in the mummy costume. You can see it in the scene where Karis walks alongside a bridge with the unconscious Amina. I've been looking for it. So, I mean, I'm going to say this is supposedly visible in that scene. I'm still not sure I see it, but maybe you can spot it. But that's where to look for it if you want to see uh, some of the seams there, so to speak. I didn't catch any of that in my transfer. I don't have the 4K Blu-ray. I have the DVDs, but I mean, they're nice and super crisp and as clean as they can be, I'm sure. Yeah, I didn't really hone in on any gaffes like that. And another thing, you can also apparently see the zipper on the left side of Cheney's mummy suit in the Scripps Museum scene. Okay. According to Jack Pierce, the mummy suit was made up of two sections. There were pants and a shirt, kind of. You know, the pants went on the way you would normally put on pants, and then the shirt would go on kind of like a t-shirt, and then the zipper on the side would help make it snug. And then there were the mummy feet, quote-unquote, which were sort of like thick socks that he would put on uh, over his bare feet. Once Cheney had these main pieces on, he was wrapped head to toe to cover the seams, and the entire suit was then painted with a liquid clay, also called slip, which was applied with a paintbrush. And then next came the fuller's earth, which was like a, a powdered clay, which would add more of a dramatic, dusty effect during Karis's fight scenes, which I thought was pretty neat. He had a top and bottom and stuff, but then they like kind of sealed them in it. Unlike with Karloff, who was kind of like legitimately wrapped head to toe for that first scene where we see him as the mummy at this point he's just like this is just all consolidated into like big costume pieces so he can just slide it on and then they just sort of do little detailing on top of that to save time that's smart i mean it looks great i didn't see any zippers you know but i'm not going through this pausing every frame like some people are after they've watched it a thousand times like my first screening thought the mummy looked great in this one yeah we haven't gotten there yet but i can already think off the top of my head of like maybe the worst mummy costume and i I don't yet know if jack pierce was behind it so i'm curious to know if he was responsible for it but in abbott and costello meet the mummy the mummy in that is atrocious Oh, it's maybe the worst mummy suit I have ever seen. Compared to that, I think this suit looks really good. I really don't have any complaints whatsoever. And then for Cheney's face, he wore a mask here. I bet at this point, you know, they've they've just decided instead of spending all that time making up his face, they'll just put the mask on. It was an over the head mask complete with hair and then was treated the same way as the rest of the suit. Now, this I thought was cool. The lips to the mask were glued to Cheney's own lips in order to give him a little more control over Karis's mouth. And then finally, the mummy gloves would be the last thing that would go on. So that just so that Cheney could have access and full use of his hands throughout the entire process. There's a lot of close-up shots in this movie of the mummy when he's attacking and things and i thought it looked great you can kind of just see the one eye moving around mm-hmm, and i felt mm-hmm. like that was plenty and yeah it didn't feel like a mask and yeah i bought it a hundred percent the mummy makeup and everything they've got that down it's not the issue for me with the movie is not is not right. the mummy yeah just like at this point they've got all that invisible man special effects down pat like they know what to do 
Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think that, you know, in the past, I've been a little bit disappointed with Cheney not really being able to be expressive with his face in these movies because they're all covered up. But I, I feel like, ironically, with this mask on, this movie is maybe where I get the most emotion from Karis for some strange reason. I feel like I, I'm able to read his face a little more, despite the fact that he's under a full mask and it's not his face. You know what I think part of it is too, we could maybe get into it a little more later, is that like I feel like he's just on screen a lot more in this movie. You know, yeah. even if he, even if he's just kind of standing around like Darth Vader in a new hope or whatever in the corner, like he's there, so he's always present uh, or he's more present i feel in this one than in at least the last one i mean it's the same kind of story in this one where he's being used by a high priest to achieve a goal right like he's just there to to facilitate that but we see him more involved in what's going on we see him actually show some emotion particularly in the in the museum scene where he kind of throws a tantrum right and we see anger in his face here so yeah he's given a little bit more agency despite the fact that he's under the control of this priest so it was cool to see him work through the mask and the makeup and everything to allow Karis to have some emotion where we haven't seen it before yeah, definitely love seeing Karis more in this one. So after some particularly strenuous takes, Cheney would be partially unwrapped. The zipper would be opened up on the side there, and Cheney would be allowed to sit in the shade for a few minutes before being zipped back up and wrapped back up for the next take. Now, unsurprisingly, Karis was Cheney's least favorite role, and he often spent much of his time complaining about it. I could see where he's coming from. Like, I almost feel at the end of this one, Kara should have spoken, right? Like, they need to evolve him a little more somehow. According to Cheney, quote, I sweat and I can't wipe it away. I itch and I can't scratch. So, I mean, not surprising. If it were me, I'd feel the same way. Easy to express frustration and anger in that sequence, I'm sure. According to Reginald LeBorg, he bribed Cheney a little bit, promising him that for their next film together, Cheney would play a dapper gentleman type. Now, this... Actually wound up being true, by the way, as LeBorg fulfilled his promise with the film Calling Dr. Death, which I believe came out in 1944 as well. So, I mean, he did make good on that promise. So, you know, good for Lon Chaney there. One last bit about Chaney, particularly in this movie, I read that in the Scripps Museum scene, when Karis breaks through a pane of plate glass... It was originally supposed to be a sheet of breakaway glass, but when the crew arrived, they discovered that it hadn't yet been installed. Not wanting to hold up the production, LeBorg instructed Cheney not to break through the glass. However, once the cameras rolled, Cheney attacked the watchman and burst through it anyway. Suffering from a gashed hand, Cheney said, quote, I wanted to show you that I had the courage. You could tell that's not fake glass because it knocks out the security guard and he like grabs his head. That's incredible. I almost wrote down stunt, but I was like, this looks wrong. Like, I think they messed up here. Yeah, no, that was absolutely real glass. And that was exactly what happened. Because every time I watch that scene after having read that story, I'm like, yeah, he's totally wasn't prepared for that hit on the head. And that's what he's doing, instinctively grabbing his head. Cheney, not the most safe actor on set. Well, it's a good thing he was already wrapped in bandages. So we've got George Zucco and John Carradine in this film. Zucco we've seen as the high priest before, of course. Carradine is playing Yusuf Bey in this film. Looks great, by the way. Clean shaven. We saw him with glasses and a mustache, I think, in the last film. 
he looked kind of like an old man here. He's a young, handsome high priest. Yeah, so I was actually quite impressed because it's like, whoa, this is a completely different character, a completely different performance. And it's only, you know, like one movie later. I almost didn't recognize him, like, to be honest. Like, I, I was like, I know that's probably John Carradine, but like, it took me two or three scenes to be positive and kind of uncanny resemblance not to Karloff himself but to the young character of Ardeth Bay like you know mm-hmm. when Ardeth Bay comes back and he's like all old and wrinkly Yusuf Bay kind of looks like a very young version of that character sure. so a lot of cool sort of parallels going on I thought Karloff myself, not necessarily, you know, his face, but like he's very tall and lean. He had that sort of bony structure. And it's like, I'm excited to see the two of them together in our next film. They're both in the next one we're going to talk about. So that'll be exciting. But yeah, I I definitely got Karloff vibes from him here where I didn't in The Invisible Man's Revenge. So he's one of the better actors in this film, I think. Yeah, certainly. I feel like his character is like extremely consistent. I mean, he lasts throughout till the end of the picture. Like a lot of people kind of come and go again. He's like a strong anchor in this entire film. Now we've got Robert Lowry as Tom Hervey. He was a native of Kansas City, Missouri and a descendant of Abraham Lincoln. Really? Yeah. It turns out like his career like never blew up. So that's one of his more famous, you know, trivia bits. Yeah. If you ask me, he's he's famous for what I would consider a way cooler reason. He played Batman. Did he really? That's what it says. I clicked on Robert Lowry. And if you go to his Wikipedia, it says right here that he became the second actor to play Batman in DC Comics Batman succeeding Lewis Wilson starring in 1949's Batman and Robin serial. So we have the mummy versus Batman in this movie. I don't know how I missed that. So thank you for catching that. That's incredible detail. Yeah. So like, I feel like so often this show comes back to Batman. Yeah, really? Batman 66 a lot. And now we actually have a guy who played Batman. Okay. So thank you for adding that because I don't have anything nearly that cool. He got his start as a singer and as an actor in small theater groups. He made his feature film debut in Come and Get It in 1936 before being contracted by 20th Century Fox. Now, remember, Cheney had spent some time at Fox as well, and the two both appeared in no fewer than 12 films together. Early in his career, much was made of his supposed similarities to Clark Gable. He worked similarly to Cheney, often appearing in villain roles in 1950s B-movies, TV westerns, and horror films, including Revenge of the Zombies in 1943. And thanks to you, I now know that he also played Batman. So... Robert Lowry's okay in this. You know, Tom is not the most compelling hero that we've seen. I think he looks a little too old to be a college student, first of all. Yeah, so what I was thinking there is like, I wonder if he was on like, was there like the GI Bill or something? Like, did he come back (laughs) from war and then go to college? Is it that situation? Because like, otherwise you feel like they'd have made him like the football hero or something like that. And later he'd like throw a rock at the mummy and it'd be like a perfect accuracy because he was the quarterback. (laughs) All those kinds of things were flowing through my mind when I was trying to understand like who this guy is, who's his character. Yeah, I mean, he means well and he's a sweet guy, the character, but like, I, I just find him to be terribly ineffective as the hero of a, of a horror yeah. film. He, he's tough. Like, that's all I pretty sure. much can say for him. Like, there's one part at the end where he kind of just, like, trips and, like, gets back up again, and he, like, takes a good hit from the mummy and survives, whereas, like, most people die from one thrashing. But, yeah, yeah, I wish there was a little bit more going on. And his best buddy kind of just, like, vanishes, too. I thought we were going to kind of get, you know, like, we had him the second one. We had, like, the kind of Abbott and Costello thing, but they don't have time for that. 
No, 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 not anymore. So we got Ramsey Ames as Amina. Now, she was a Roomba band leader in Miami and Chicago and a singer at New York Stork Club before becoming a contracted player at Universal at just 24 years old. She didn't have much of an acting career, to be honest. She popped up here and there in various B-movies, including Calling Dr. Death, as I mentioned previously, and The Mummy's Ghost is probably her most popular film. However, like one of the things that I read is that she was not originally chosen to play Amina. The original choice was a film star who had a singular name. Her name was Aquanetta. She was a star of 1943's Captive Wild Woman and 1944's Jungle Woman. And she was, again, she was slated to be the lead female character in this. But in the early production, there was an incident where she apparently fainted and hit her head, knocking her unconscious. And while she was at Universal's dispensary being treated for a concussion, producer Ben Pavar found Ramsey Ames among Universal's bullpen of curvy contract actresses to take over the role which kind of sucks that you just like fit the gown pretty much or something and like yeah the unfortunate you know accident with the previous actress also obviously i like ramsey Ames. she's good at what she's given i wish she was given a little more like like she's mostly doing a repeat of the first movie what was going on with that Mm -hmm. there's a bit of a twist to it again you know i wish there was just a little more time because she deserves you know a sister or a best friend or like just another woman for her to sort of talk to you know it's just because every time tom busts in the door it's just like panic and like everybody's just being so loud and they have maybe one moment in the car where they're able to breathe uh, which is kind of a nice quiet scene i just wish there were a few more characters around uh, especially like female characters if not to contrast what she's going through 100 percent yeah, just something like that. Like have have like some kind of baseline as well. She kind of plays damsel in distress for the entirety of this movie. I mean, even from her very first scene, which we'll get into some of the issues that I have with that. But like from the start, she is plagued by something. And yeah. Tom is always there to like get her out of these situations. And I'm thinking, just let her be a, a character and not just somebody who's always in danger. And it's also tough that it's like Amina and Ananka. Like that's super close. Right. Well, so I was tripping up with that. And yeah, and also most of the time she's sort of sleepwalking too. So she's very much like got that like somnomalist action going on with her too, which gives her a little even less to do. According to Aquanetta, I wanted to let her tell her side of the story. She said, quote, we had scabs on the set. We had a scene where I had to fall and these scabs had put real rocks down on the path. They were supposed to have paper mache rocks, but they didn't. These scabs painted real rocks white. I fell and struck my head, and that's all I remember. I woke up in the hospital. I have the effects of that to this day. I struck my arm, too, when I fell, and when I had my second son, my elbow swelled up like a ball. They said that was still from the accident because it crushed a little bone in my elbow. Weird. So when she's saying scabs, was there, like, line crossing by, like... Like non-union workers, yeah. Wow. Yep. That was happening at Universal right now? They're in the making of these films? That's crazy. According to her, if you believe her side of the story, she was set up to fail you know so i don't know exactly what the truth is but i wanted to at least let her have her say as well i don't really know much about her from personal experience i did some research into like her filmography and like she didn't have a very lengthy career but she did like like i said before like sort of jungle adventure films that sucks but like i said the film as it is as it exists i think that ramsey ames does a solid job in the role i just kind of wish that aquanetta had gotten her opportunity to do it 
It's really weird that all these years later, there's an actress called Aquafina. Yes. I'm glad I write all this stuff out in front of me so that I don't make that mistake. Because every time I was thinking about it, like I was preparing to record and I just kept thinking Aquafina, Aquafina. I'm like, no, that's a different actor. Barton McLean plays our Inspector Walgreen. He is probably best known as General Martin Peterson on the NBC sitcom I Dream of Genie. Okay. Yeah, he was a star football player at Wesleyan University before transitioning to Broadway in 1927. In the 1930s, he signed a contract with Warner Brothers when he worked with Fritz Lang, Michael Curtiz, and William Cayley. He also worked alongside Humphrey Bogart and John Huston, appearing in The Maltese Falcon and The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. And it wasn't until the 1950s when he started becoming a television regular. And that's pretty much where his career stayed for the rest. You know, he just became a TV actor. We've got Frank Riker as Professor Norman reprising his role. We sort of talked about him in the last Mummy episode that we did, so I won't get all into that. The Mold Man. Yes, which plays very heavily in this one. Lots of mentions of mold, which I thought was was cool. But I did learn that in the scene where Kara strangles Professor Norman, Cheney apparently got carried away and squeezed so forcefully that Frank Riker nearly fainted. Jeez, Cheney doesn't know his own strength. No, 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 no. He's a loose cannon. Might have been a little tipsy too, so... According to Reginald LeBorg, quote, Riker very nearly was unconscious. He was moaning on the floor. Cheney had just gotten carried away. He was putting everything he had into the monster. Luckily, Riker didn't complain. He was an older man. He knew Cheney was the star and he let go. We massaged his neck and gave him some water. But the next day when I saw him again, I spied a look at Riker's neck and you could see he had spots there from the strangling. What a pro. Too bad they didn't get that on camera. Look at the marks on his neck. Claire Whitney plays Mrs. Norman. Harry Shannon is the sheriff. Now, Shannon was another Broadway and vaudeville guy getting his start on the stage before spending a little more than 30 years in front of a camera, racking up over 200 credits, most of them westerns. But he's probably most well known for his role in Citizen Kane, where he played Jim Kane, Charlie's father. Oh, you can't give him away. You're going to sell the boy. What are you doing? At least let him take his sled. Yeah, I, I was like, why does this guy look so familiar? And then it hit me, you know, it's it's Charlie Kane's dad. Yeah, I would not have put that together. He's got the one scene in the orphanage, you know, and it's like with Angus Moore, he didn't, you know, <laughs> that's crazy. But I guess he was a Mercury Theater player, so good for him. Right. So uh, we got Emmett Vogan as the coroner. Now, if you thought Harry Shannon's 200 films in 30 years was impressive, Emmett Vogan made almost 500 film appearances between 1934 and 1954. What the hell? He is considered one of the most prolific actors of all time. He's in everything. Yeah, I figured rather than go through his entire filmography, like just, just look at it. But yeah, he did 500 films in 20 years. Whoa, that's even more impressive that it wasn't like Sam Jackson taking his sweet ass time, you know, his entire career racking yeah. up hundreds of movies like this guy just worked. In modern times in 2022, I'm thinking uh, of a guy like James Hong in that way. You know, he's mm. made over 700 films and I, I don't know the length of his career. It's been more than 20 years, obviously, yeah. but I can't think of somebody else who's done, you know, in the five, six, seven hundreds. Right. And, and on like at least an episode of every sitcom ever, probably. Too, right so. yeah i mean so i say i say films but like i i think that might also include tv but you know he made five six seven hundred appearances and things on screen so yeah i mean that 520 years is a hell of an accomplishment we've got lester sharp as dr ayad and that's kind of it for our cast but one thing that i found interesting about this movie that i kind of like now i know you you want to talk about this as well we'll talk about it at length later but uh we've got another downer ending 
Yeah. Right. We've got a downer ending. The son of Dracula had a downer ending. The mummy's ghost has a downer ending. And the reason I wanted to bring it up now is because I discovered some stuff about Reginald LeBorg. He, in fact, like he insisted on this ending. So apparently he was inspired by Frank Capra's Lost Horizon. Oh, I love that movie. Fantastic. Yeah. It's, un- it's also parts of it are lost forever, which is unfortunate, but sure. still watch it. So according to him, quote, we discussed the finale with Pavar, Ben Pavar, the producer, and I said, why not let Amina sink with the mummy? Why should there always be a happy ending? And somebody else said, no, we might make a sequel. I told him, the mummy is always coming up. Ananka doesn't have to. Wow, good call. That's like almost what saves the whole movie in my mind is like the, the ending, right? And they even mm-hmm. say that's like a saying, you know, if you can just wow them in the end, you've got them. And I think this movie might have done that for me the more I'm thinking about like how crazy the ending is. Again, we'll, we'll get into that when we eventually get there. But I agree with you that it's one of the stronger choices, although I don't think that it's necessarily executed as well as it could have been. Yeah, I mean, but like they're just learning, I, I would assume, right? Like, how do you even pull that off, like with taste or with grace? I think some of it has to do with how much I don't really care for Tom as a, as a hero. What, you mean that, like, he couldn't save the girl kind of thing? I just didn't feel it in his performance. Well, I mean, ultimately, he couldn't save the girl, right? Like, that guy's going to go on and, like, be depressed forever. Like, he, you know, what a horrible experience. But we get, I think we get a better emotional impact at the end of Son of Dracula when we see, um, like, his face as he's walking out of the, the, the house as it's on fire, you know? Yeah, well, he he had to participate in that, you know, like he actually had a hand in in the ending of all that. And this one, Tom just has to get there too late and watch. Right. Okay, so let's get into the movie. It's a quick 60 minutes, as I've said. Credits are nothing to write home about. I mean, pretty simple opening credits. Yep. Not only that, we got the same Universal logo. Yep. Yeah, just some simple hieroglyphics behind the mummy's ghost title card. But we get a pretty effective, like, opening, what, five, ten minutes? There's some very clever editing throughout this movie that I wasn't expecting. And it's, it's very cool. And that happens in the very, like, opening. Yeah, instead of having the entire sort of recap all set in this temple of Arkham, we kind of cut back and forth. We're getting caught up on the story and at the same time being introduced to all the major players, right? So first is our high priest and we've got George Zucco and um, John Carradine. And it's basically the same as the last Mummy film. The high priest of the temple has to send somebody else back to the United States to retrieve Karis. And the Princess Ananka. He, he's also just bestowing upon him the, the rank of new high priest as well. Yep. You know, that whole like passing the torch ceremony that, that the last couple movies have started with. That That's cool. I like that they're actually keeping up with that. But it is a little jarring that George Zuko's the guy doing it. Whatever. <laughs> What's interesting here is that they do change the origin story a little bit. He seems to suggest that Ananka was complicit in the forbidden love affair, whereas in previous films, it's that Karis or in the original mummy film, Imhotep, who had violated the sacred laws. Yeah. So in this, Ananka is now maybe partly responsible for this whole curse and, and, and everything. In cutting back and forth, we also meet Tom in his archaeology class, which is being taught by Professor Norman. He explains the whole situation with the fire at the Banning House, which we saw. (laughs) The firehouse. I was hoping for it to reappear at this. Oh, me too. 
in this we get some sort of like it's almost like a halloween sequel or a friday the 13th sequel where the town is still affected by the trauma from before yeah yeah i wish that was played up a little more but it's funny at the end when like the mob just isn't scared of the mummy you know they're right. like at this point they're like evil dies tonight yes but this is fun too because you know you have the high priest explaining the stuff to Carradine. He's telling the whole story. And then he's like, 30 years ago, these guys came and, and snatched all of our shit and brought it back to America. And then we cut to the classroom and we get like a whole different side of that story. You know, we get like the victim side. This is the town that was terrorized by the mummy. And so they're kind of explaining the last movie, putting a better spin on it, I would try and say, you know? Yeah, yeah. I would much rather get a recap like this than repurposing old footage, right? Now we're doing two things at once, right? Like I said, we're, we're getting the recap, but we're also meeting these new characters and we're learning through context how this town has responded to the previous events. And I mean, even the, the students in the class are like, hey, isn't there something about like Tana leaves? Yeah, there's a lore now that's spread. <laughs> yes. And, and I think it is actually a really clever stroke of using a classroom for exposition. Like it mm -hmm. almost reminds me again, hey, Indiana Jones. Yes. Yep. Right? Like perfect example right there. Like, you know, I was complaining when we started that it's like, oh, it's a retread, it's a retread, but the way they're actually executing it is quite clever. Yeah. It's one of the stronger things about this movie for sure. You know, we also get introduced to Amina here. You know, after class is over, yeah. Tom goes, <laughs> I love his buddy who's just like, hey, maybe you should talk to your girlfriend about this. She's Egyptian, isn't she? And, he, and he's like, yeah, what's it to you? It's like, what kind of racist shit is that? No, it's kind of true. But then he goes and he's like, hey, you're Egyptian. What? Why is Egyptian <laughs> stuff bother you? Like, what? <laughs> it's bizarre, but you're right. That's why I was sort of glad that dude disappears from the movie, but not glad that he didn't get thrashed by the mummy. Right, yeah. So the thing that strikes me as unusual here is that from like the moment we meet Amina, she hears the word Egypt and is suddenly under some kind of distress, right? Yeah. I don't understand why she should feel that way yet. We know where this is going. Uh, Ananka will sort of be reincarnated within her. However, that hasn't happened yet. And I think it's strange to imply that it has. That's where the story here gets a little bit wonky. And I feel like if they had not chosen this path, like this, this would be the opportunity to really let her be a powerful or at least independent character with her own goals and ambitions but instead they're setting up the reincarnation that she's got to be this sort of always behind the eight ball kind of like shadow over her the entire time kind of character yeah i agree with that too you know because it's like we don't get a chance to know her before she starts having like these visions or, or vibes or whatever she's getting and and those really shouldn't start until at least the first nine tana leaves are burned like you know what i mean like nothing really supernatural has started yet mm -hmm. and so it's odd that she's been you know for lack of better word triggered by something that hasn't occurred but i would totally understand if say the professor said a chant or something that awoke ananka in a certain way that would make her feel like that but you're right maybe she's having a premonition but we never know if that's the case you know it's just something you have to grasp at straws and and also would have been nice to see you know maybe before she turns like into miss mummy or whatever <laughs> like into ananka before she like starts having that transformation like it just would have been cool if like you know i was just thinking 
recently we've had a lot of interesting stuff between like supernatural and science so like maybe yes. if a science major or something like that and then she's like you know i'm trying to struggle between what i can prove and what you can't and you know it, that would have been an interesting sort of struggle but i know i'm asking too much of this <laughs> but i just can't help myself yeah instead of trying to search for some scientific explanation here i think that We've got a town that is prepared for this, you know, so we don't have to like slow down the movie to explain anything. I think it's a fair trade-off, you know? Yeah, because it's all been said. Like, we've just been told that this is a direct sequel and everything you want to know about that argument was said already. So yeah. like all the things we're going to say again, it's not going to be that. Even like the cops in the, in the corner, they're like, oh, there's mold. It's got to be a mummy. Yeah, mummies are real. No question. So the recap kind of wraps up with the high priest and Yusuf Bey, and we get the last bit. I mean, we already know this information, but Yusuf is learning about the the sort of ritual with the Tana leaves. Nine Tana leaves and the cycle of the full moon will uh, give Karas his power. Now, why he chooses to like demonstrate this in Egypt, where Karis is not, I don't know, because like it seems like a waste of Tana leaves, which are extinct. It's not that complicated to brew leaves in some hot water. Yeah, make tea. But I mean, it makes for a good visual. It just doesn't make any sense. I could understand if that woke up the mummy or something. You know what I mean? But like the Possibly. mummy doesn't even wake up until the next burning of the, of the leaves. Right. Maybe there's a proximity alert or something. Hardly the, uh, you know, the biggest head scratching moment we've seen. With everything, with all the exposition kind of out of the way, we are back with Professor Norman. He is at his home doing his own independent study. He has like an artifact, which looks like a little chest with the, the tana leaves inside. And he has translated the hieroglyphics and has discovered that the secret to, to controlling Karas is to brew the nine tana leaves. And so his poor wife, who just wants him to come to bed, gets sort of like dismissed, like, no, I'm, I've, I've got it. I can't, can't wait till tomorrow. I have to deal with this now. And so she goes to bed and he does the ritual. He brews his tanity. And of course, that draws Karis right to him. Yeah, he could have just like wait till morning, leave well enough alone. Well, no, because it might not be a full moon tomorrow. Oh, that's right. It's the full moon. But then you just wait till the next full moon when you got more people. And you, I know I know he's anxious. I mean, uh -huh. it's just it's rough. Like you get like two types of professors in the universal world. And this guy definitely doesn't earn his own castle. If you <laughs> yeah. catch my meaning, you know, uh -huh. like but I think my biggest issue with the movie overall, OK, is right here is that. All I'm asking for, I guess, is one reverse stop motion shot of the mummy reforming. Right, right. I just want to see the mummy reform come out of the lake. It's just that like he burns the leaves and suddenly he shuffles out of the woods. Like he's just been living out there. Yeah, waiting, just hibernating. That troubled me a little bit. I was, you know, come on, guys. I know this is like only an hour, but look how far you've come with special effects. Like do a cool mummy kind of uh, coming back together kind of thing. I don't know. I kind of wish that Jack Pierce had done what he had done for Bride of Frankenstein, where the, the monster had some battle damage, you know, like his the yeah. side of his face was kind of burned, like his scalp wasn't the way it was before. And so the last time we saw Karas, he was in a house fire. And so it would have been cool to see him sort of charred a little bit. But we don't we don't get that, unfortunately. Yeah, and one thing I was thinking of too, it could have been a you know a simple sort of touch is like if it sort of burned through bandages in a way, and you see like actual rib bones, right. you know, some stuff like that. Like that could have been an interesting touch. 
And then, you know, uh, Carradine could have, like, gotten some fresh bandages in the scene and been like, here, I will rewrap you for our journey. Yeah, but unfortunately, it doesn't appear that they were interested in doing anything that would be too costly or time-consuming. Ten days, Dan. I know. Jack Pierce was only interested in making this process as efficient as possible. So it's unfortunate. I feel like that would have made the mummy kind of cooler in this movie. But yeah, so Karis shuffles out of the woods and strangles Professor Norman to death before taking a big gulp of that tea. Meanwhile, Amina sort of is like the the, the ritual has sort of woken her up. She's like in a sleepwalking kind of trance state headed toward Professor Norman's house. And just as she comes within view of Kara, she faints, which saves her life, probably. Yeah, a couple cool things going on here, actually. Visually, I thought, um, as Amina exits the house, a black cat runs across the screen. Uh Uh-huh. I don't know if that was intentional or not, but I noticed that as well, and I really loved it. Again, I mentioned a Terminator before, but like the, I'm really getting Terminator vibes when he's like walking through like the fence and stuff. Yeah, it's just that creeping death is just like, I don't know, really got to me. Again, I think I'm getting more used to Mummy in the suburbs. Remember last time I was sort of yeah. having a, an adjustment issue and with Dracula's son, I was having an adjustment issue. It was uh-huh. like Monsters in America. But here it's working better for whatever reason. And I think there's a great looming shot of the Mummy right before he chokes out the professor too. Like that was a really nice shot to end all that kind of stuff on. It was kind of a fun little sequence there. I know it's kind of strange, but I think it's kind of a brilliant move to bring the mummy into the United States and and have, uh, you know, Dracula in the United States as well. Because like we got so used to these characters feeling like they were foreign. Right. But like bringing them to the United States, suddenly the mummy could be in my backyard. I don't think the movies are as scary as they could have potentially been. Right. Given that perspective. But I do think that was a cool move to like suddenly make the mummy in my backyard more plausible than it was previously yeah i wonder if that's like in the first kind of batch of movies like it's always these like you know travelers going to these foreign lands and like the monsters live there like they're born there you know like frankenstein lives in there and dracula lives in transylvania you know and then it's like when the protagonist is like a fish out of water or something but then when the monster comes to america it's like they're the fish out of water Mm -hmm. so it adds just like an extra dimension to play with which can be fun totally and the last thing that we get in that scene before we move on when amina faints she passes out we get a close-up of her wrist and she has what we will discover later is a birthmark that is significant i think that the establishment of that birthmark and the explanation of it are too far apart definitely Right. Because I think you could forget that that was there by the time they, you find out what it is. But, uh, you know, I've watched this movie several times in the past couple of days. And so now I'm like looking for the explanation. And so, uh, yeah, so we get that shot of her wrist with the little mark on it, which will come into play later. Like I'm talking within the last 10 minutes. <laughs> I did forget about it. I was like, what? What mark? It looks kind of like a tattoo, but it's a birthmark of some kind. Yes. It would have been cool if it was like a, a glyph or something. Then I would have remembered it having just seen it once. Right. And so now we're, we're back with Tom and his buddy, his roommate, I suppose. Tom is learning that Amina was found outside of Professor Norman's house. He was discovered dead. There's a whole like investigation going on. Back at Professor Norman's house, we've got the sheriff and the coroner investigating the crime scene. And they, of course, find mold on Professor Norman's neck. And they know instantly it's a mummy. 
Yeah, that's what's kind of fun, I guess, actually. You know, the more we're talking about it, the more this movie's kind of growing on me. You know what I mean? Like, I guess watching it is a different experience than talking about it, obviously. But, right. like, bringing back Mummy Mold, like, I got such a kick out of that in the last episode that I I never would have imagined that would have been one of, like, the huge carryover things. But, like, yeah, everyone remembers. Like, yeah, I'm finally getting a kick out of this. At the crime scene, Amina is also there. She's being questioned by the sheriff. Tom shows up and they're trying to get her her story straight. Apparently, they went out to uh, a movie the night before. She returned home around 11 o'clock and went straight to bed. And Professor Norman was, they believe, was murdered uh, around midnight. So still definitely plausible that Amina had something to do with Professor Norman's death, but there's really no evidence to pin her to this, so they can't really hold her, and so the investigation continues. Amina now has this white streak in her hair. Yes, which, okay, the one thing about this movie that I absolutely hate, I can forgive everything else. There's a shot in that sequence, right before Amina and Tom leave, where he notices the streak in her hair, And there's a very obvious insert that they hadn't planned on. The camera cuts to this like close up of Amina's head as she's like, what do you, what do you, what's the matter, Tom? And you you see the big white streak. It is so fuzzy compared to the rest of this movie. It's like they just took this shot, blew it up and then inserted it in as a separate cut. Oh, I see. I see. I thought you were going to say like there was a like a shot where she didn't have it and then it was there again. No, and, she's like, got it. But but like they clearly didn't get coverage the day of. They had to make it look like a separate cut and then blow up the shot. And it just it looks awful when it's inserted like that. So oh, that's that's too bad. I, I didn't pick up on that. But that I mean, even with these new transfers. Yeah, it it may look differently on a DVD. I'm not sure. So now with this new crime scene, the news of the mummy is all over the news. Oh yeah, headlines, headlines. We get newspapers again. Let me see if I can read them out to you. Mummy believed to be back in New England. Mapleton monster thought destroyed is blamed for new atrocity. Further attacks by the monster feared. Townspeople warned to stay indoors at night. All able-bodied men asked to contribute part of time to patrol streets from sundown to sunup. Register at sheriff's office. Okay, so there's fewer, but they're longer. And the second one is basically like, hey, want to join a mob? We're getting a posse together to take out this mummy. So, like, just come on down to town hall. It's so brilliant because the mob with the pitchforks and the torches has become such a cliche. I love this new angle on it where now we do get introduced to some new characters as a result of this, right? Like... We meet Ben, who's just like a local farmer, I suppose. He's his wife and he's signed up and he gets this late night shift from 930 or not late night, but 930 to 12. You know, everyone's just happy to do their part. And so we're meeting members of what will be the angry mob and they're becoming like actual characters of the movie. So it's so crazy. Like, I I don't know if it's trying to say something about America, probably, but like, I don't have the mental capacity to do it right now to try and suss that out. In my mind, I'm like, I can't believe we just have like mummy patrol, you know, like, it's just something as like easy as that to me where it's like, yeah, mummies are a thing. Like we all know it. Like, it's almost like the MCU after the blip where it's like, our aliens exist, one attacked us, like be on the lookout. Superheroes are real. Like this is just the world we live in now, folks. I can't imagine 
imagine trying to start a neighborhood watch as easily as this. Everyone is just so willing to volunteer and help however they can. Maybe that's what they're saying is that like, look how eager they are to suss out the other in the neighborhood. Maybe. So with the new like town, I guess we will call it a neighborhood watch. That's essentially what it is. With that established, we've met Ben and his wife. We go back to Yusuf Bay, who is like in the middle of the woods. He's got his um, tana leaves and he's performing this ritual during a full moon. And this, of course, draws Karis out of the wilderness. And this is where we get, I believe, our second kill. As Karis is wandering through the wilderness to make his way to Yusef, we are reunited with Tom and Amina, who are out on like sort of like a date night, just trying to get away from trouble. But she is distracted, can't enjoy herself. She sees shadows all over the place. Um, there's a real fun gag in here where they, you think it's the mummy coming through and it's it's this guy, Ben, who's on his nightly patrol. <laughs> yeah, that was fun. Did we mention Pina? Second movie in a row with a monster fighting dog. Yeah, so uh, this movie has two monster fighting dogs. And later at the end, they legit turn into Lassie. Yes. Is that a thing? Is Benji, Lassie? I know Rin Tin Tin came out of the war. It was like uh, based on a real dog. But like this is, we're getting straight up Lassie in this movie. (laughs) It's amazing. Where's the mummy, Lassie? So Lassie was based on a story that was published in 1859. Okay. Called The Half Brothers, which Lassie was sort of inspired by. The full-length novel that Lassie showed up in was 1938, Lassie Come Home. So yeah, the idea of a dog that rescues people like this had been established, at least in literature. Yeah, so that kind of idea, I guess, of the dog being heroic and, and like being able to sort of understand and shepherd people around and all that, that's a, that some, seems to have sunk in by now. So I, I just wasn't you know sure about the whole like connection to Lassie or Benji or any of that stuff. This might be a little bit of a stretch, but The Thin Man came out in 1934. Okay, yeah. And, you know, we had Asta from The Thin Man. So... Yeah, I think it's safe to say that like hyper-intelligent dog has been well-established on screen by this point. And I'd be surprised if they weren't influenced or trying to capitalize on that trend uh, in some way here. Hey, it comes all the way to modern day with Ayn from Cowboy Bebop. That's right. So, like, hey, whatever works, it, it's been working. So we've got Peanuts, Tom, and Amina like wrapping up their date. She just wants to go home. And as they take off... Karis discovers Ben's farm. Uh, Ben has returned home from his watch. His dog, King, immediately goes after Karis. But what surprised me is that Karis doesn't kill this dog. We've seen an invisible man try to kill a dog, but Karis doesn't really, like, he kind of, I mean, he takes some swings, but he doesn't really make a conscious effort to murder this dog, which I thought was cool. You know what I was thinking? I was like, mummies love cats. Yes. Right? Like, dog mortal enemy i'm such an idiot the cat that we saw run across the screen that has to be that there you go yeah completely forgot the connection between cats and egyptians so yeah i mean i'm I'm sure that's exactly what that was i'm sure there's some connection between karis as an an egyptian mummy and animals in general and so maybe that's why it's he doesn't instinctively kill king but he he doesn't hesitate to kill ben i love this sequence i think it's mostly because there's a dog in it but with ben dead karis continues along his path to Yusuf Bay. I love the big hole in the wall. I'm glad it's not in the shape of a man, you know, like a cartoon. 
they can't do that yet. We're not there. I don't even think we get that until like the last shot of an Abbott and Costello movie, even, right. you know, like they really save that gag yeah. as, as long as possible. But yeah, I like that the mummy doesn't use doors, you know, he's just make his own way through shit. Like again, that's like cool monster zombie kind of stuff. Like just walk wherever you got to walk. Yeah. And I love that the dog doesn't die and Ben puts up a fight, you know, at least he doesn't go out like a Trump. It happens off screen, but he fires some shots. Yeah. So the police now, the investigation has moved to Ben's farm. They, of course, find more mold on him so that the pieces are starting to come together. There's definitely a mummy in town and he's definitely on some kind of a murder spree. They find his tracks in the dirt. You know what's got to be like low for morale is that like one of the guys on the mummy mob just got killed by the mummy. Another like maybe more salt in the wound is this mummy doesn't exactly move very quickly. So it's it's incredible to me that with all these people out actively looking for him, it's like almost impossible. He's still managing to kill people. It's the Michael Myers thing. You know, they're just like, they cover more ground the slower they go. True. I don't know how they do it. Because you're right. Like, he could have just ran and been like, the mummy's in my barn. The mummy's in my barn. But no, I mean, and they have telephones in this day and age. It's crazy. So with Yusuf Bey united with Karas, we go to the Scripps Museum. Because now we need to get Ananka before we can go home. And there's a tour in progress. I really enjoy this sequence. Yeah, Carradine's like on the tour. So he like immediately just starts getting the tan of leaves out and, and he's going to resurrect Ananka. Yeah, he's going to do a little night at the museum action, right? I was thinking they were going to do some kind of heist thing, you know, but never goes that far. No, no, he he waits until like the place closes and then sneaks out of a shadow and comes out to do his business. I love the security guard. He's just like chilling out in his like little security office, reading a mystery magazine, like an Ellery Queen mystery magazine. Might have to double check this, but he's reading Detective Comics and Batman is in this movie and he's listening to Dr. X on the radio. Like he's got his pulp show on. Like I love this character and like he's on screen for like not even a minute yet. I don't think it's Detective Comics. I don't really get a a really clear look at the cover, but I think it says Detective Stories. Okay, close enough. I saw the detective and it looked like a comic book to me and I started going nuts. I 100% see why you thought that. And you could be right. Again, I don't get a real clear view of it, but it does look a little too thick to me to be a comic book. But that would have been awesome to have him reading a detective comics. But yeah, he's listening to like some sort of like inner sanctum kind of mystery radio show. He's reading his detective story magazine. I love that. I just love those details. Yeah, like this guard, he's got more character than like half the characters in this movie. And he, and he has no dialogue. Right, and he's about to die. Yeah. Damn it. Uh, or maybe he has some dialogue, but like hardly any. So now with the place closed down, Kara sort of sneaks in through a back door. And Yusef Bey starts his ritual to bring Ananka back to life. You know what's kind of fun about the guard's death is that the radio drama kind of foretells his doom. I can't remember exactly what it's saying, but like I remember listening to it being like, oh, and, and he's about to suffer this fate. Yes, it's very similar. It's, I think it, it's about somebody who's being snuck up on and doesn't see it coming. And, you know, so yeah, which is about to happen in the next scene. And so now with uh, Yusef Bey and Karas in the exhibit room with Ananka's sarcophagus, they're about to begin the ritual to bring her back. Unfortunately, as they get through this ritual, they discover that her body disappears, right? It's sort of like Obi-Wan Kenobi just sort of 
disappears. Definitely. Yeah, this was good because it was new. The last time the soul of Ananka transferred into someone, she had to stare at her own corpse. Yes. So this time the corpse just kind of vanishes when the soul enters the other body, I guess. Right, and that's signified by a cut to Amina who wakes up out of a dead sleep screaming. And I believe at this point now she's got like two white streaks in her hair. I mean, she's going to accumulate white streaks and through now until the end. And so now with no Princess Ananka, Karas throws a tantrum. Again, more emotion than we've ever seen from Karas. I love this where he's just like smashing the artifacts and the, the sarcophagus that's up against that wall. And he's just on a rampage. Yeah, mummy rage. Oh, it's like, so good. Yeah. We talk all the time about how Lon Chaney is so capable of um, expression, right? And and here he gets to do it in physical way. And I, and I just think it's, it's really fantastic performance here. And so now our guard hearing that commotion comes in, points the gun at Yusuf and is prepared to stop theft or whatever it is he's trying to do. You know, he doesn't cut and run. I don't think he was uh, at the meeting, so he might not be aware that the mummy's out and about. No, he's probably no, because this is in a different town. Exactly. Yeah. And why would word travel that fast? He's grabbed from behind. He's thrown through a, a real plate glass window. Yeah, that's the moment. Yep. And is presumably killed. We see him later. I think they find more mold on him as the police uh, investigate this crime scene. Yep. So now with Ananka somewhere else, now reincarnated into another human form, now they have to find her. And so that's the task at hand for Yusuf and, and Karas. Amina still shooken up from her nightmare. And now Tom, just desperate to do anything for the woman he loves, goes to see the sheriff. And, and he, his plan is to take her to New York for a, a short vacation. He mentions later too, he's like, I got people in New York. We'll go see my people. I mean, she's like, oh, you sure your family is going to accept me? And he keeps referring to his family as his people. Right. Those are a weird choice of words, but whatever. <laughs> but I just, I love that he wants to take his girlfriend, who is a suspect in an active murder investigation out of town and the sheriff's like no way dude <laughs> i know but you know the like the crazy thing is that's probably the smartest thing they should have done is like get her as far away from this as possible until they could do whatever they can to that mummy yeah if only they knew i don't think they you know they don't really suspect she has anything to do with it yet but they're just going by the book but now we meet a couple new characters here we meet the investigator he outranks the town sheriff in mapleton so he must be like a fed and then we've got dr ayad who's like the chief egyptologist at the museum he's really just there to be the egypt expert in each scene to explain stuff yeah, I feel like, you know, the movie was like, oh, shit, we killed off our scientists. Like, we need our scientists back. Yeah. Like, we got we to gotta get a guy who's just like the last guy. Like, they should have just kept that one guy alive. You know, I'm not saying, like, have the mummy kill his wife instead or whatever. But this guy's fine. I like this guy, too. I really like this inspector guy, whatever. Like, he comes into the movie and fucking takes over in a way that I wish people did more often instead of just come in and baffle me. But, like, he ends up just, like, taking charge charge and names and shit and yes. like organizing the whole goddamn plan and, and you know and he's like don't be afraid of this damn mummy the only thing that strikes me as strange about that is that he is like from out of town and he 
just accepts there's a mummy out there. He doesn't need any convincing. Yeah. I get yeah. everybody else kind of being on board with that, but this guy's like, all right, hang on. We got some murders. I'm in charge here. What's going on? There's a mummy. Got it. All right, here's what we're going to do. <laughs> I guess, you know, we've been saying, you know, there's proof, there's all this proof and it's happened before and this. So like, maybe he believes, you know, maybe he's just more inclined to believe the, the facts of the matter and all that. And, you know, and, and maybe just like another, I don't know, decade or two. I don't know when this concept came about but like he definitely feels more like men in black yes it's like he's like a like an agent like molder you know yeah you yeah. tell me there's a mummy okay there's reincarnation cool let's get let's do it you start digging so together with the sheriff he heads over to professor norman's house the location of the original murder he's kind of getting the whole sort of the broad picture right this is where they discover thanks to our, our new egyptologist they discover the tanity ceremony and yeah. that, that was that had to have been the thing that drew the mummy out. Okay, cool. And then the plan the inspector comes up with is they decide that what they're going to do is they're going to repeat the ceremony. And this time they're going to have like a trap set. They're going to build like a big hole, like right outside the door, cover it up. Figuring they don't know how to kill the mummy yet. Nothing has proven to be effective in that regard, but they can at least trap it. And what are they going to do? Like pour cement over it? That would have been amazing. That would have been awesome. And then this guy's got to live with a trapped mummy in front of his house for the rest of his life. Yeah, I mean, imagine like how that property value would just take a dive because there's a, a, a cursed mummy uh, buried outside. I, I love the line too where he's like, this is no ordinary criminal. Right. You got to make him come to us. <laughs> There's some fun pulpy monster stuff happening in this sequence. Like, it's just fun. You described this movie as having like two distinct halves where like the first half is kind of like the recap and kind of gets us back into familiar territory. And then part like the second half is about like dealing with this moment. And I love how this second half, these new characters give like the whole movie some new life you know they're like a breath of fresh air yeah i love this inspector's energy yeah so i I think you're right about that and and i think it's a good thing for this movie that it's short and like halfway through now we're like switching gears and we've got no nonsense characters and you're right they're very pulpy and i think that makes it so much fun i think it's just like good directing too right like this guy this guy knows what he wants and to make this movie in 10 days like i gotta give him way more credit than you know i have been and everything like for what it's worth i can't believe this was like they did this well with this amount of time and like they're getting great performances out of these players Mm -hmm. everybody's just like feels really committed you know even robert lowry even though we're kind of ragging on tom like he's not given a lot to do but you could tell the guy is sort of throwing himself into this role you know for what it is Yeah, I don't think the problem is him as much as it is the character wasn't really written to be very interesting. Yeah, the writing all around is just not doing it for me. (laughs) Yeah, so now we're back with Tom and and Amina, and and Tom has decided that he's going to ignore the sheriff and take Amina to his people in New York and write him like an apology note. He's basically going to kidnap her and be like, sorry, come and get us. Like, we're going to give away our location after. He makes it clear, though, that he has every intention of marrying her. So now we've got stakes for the two of them to get through this story. I can't remember who this woman is that he leaves her with. I thought it was the doctor's wife or the professor's wife. No, it's not her. But he leaves Peanuts there with her to keep her safe. That actually ends up helping in the long run. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that Peanut. Good dog. 
we cut back to Yusef and Karis, and they are performing a, a separate ritual now. Yusef needs to locate the person who now is the host for the Princess Ananka. Man, like, I really feel like the end of this movie does it for me for some reason. Even though we're going to retread familiar ground, like, these guys are now hanging out together in, like, some abandoned mine or something. Why aren't they in a cemetery, in a crypt? It's kind of offbeat in a weird way in the last mummy movie the hq was in a cemetery right so yeah i think yeah. it had to be somewhere different i know it's hard to describe what kind of factory it looks like but it almost reminded me of the vincent price invisible man climax location yeah because it's built up off the ground yep and then also i love that he's busting out all of these spells mm-hmm. you know he's got a spell to locate this a spell to locate that he's calling on Kanchu to like guide us by the moonlight and everything like you know i'm getting more into it as it gets along I guess. These high priests are, are like, we're now seeing they're kind of like wizards, right? And I think that's super cool. I, I would love to see them do like more magic. This is the most magic we've seen them do. So yeah, that would be cool if they tried to do something new with this franchise today is to bring these high priests back yes. and, and, you know, make them an actual order and, and go the whole nine yards with that. They could do that and then have the mummy be, maybe he sort of rejects their authority. I mean, he does that at the end of every movie anyway. That's part of his sort of like, growth but i mean they could do it in a way where they don't strip him of a character you know like where he's not just a blunt instrument they give him emotions and a backstory and maybe as long as he's under their power he has to reluctantly do what they say there's ways to keep the priests involved i think that would be really awesome instead of having just archaeologists discover a mummy who is an independent being but this secret society of like high priests is really really fucking cool Even in these movies, like, granted, they use the mummy as a tool, but they also protect the earth from the mummy getting loose in a lot of ways, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. And, like, I feel like that's kind of, like, the object here is they're like, you know, you have to go to America and bring all that shit back Uh because it doesn't belong there. It is just going to, like, ruin everything. And as long as it's here where it belongs, like, things can be kind of peaceful for a while. Right. So they perform this ritual and they get a heading for where Ananka is. And so Kara sets out on his own to go get her. Meanwhile, the crime scene is still very active at Professor Norman's house. The thing that struck me as strange here is that we've got this Egyptologist who can just sort of like read hieroglyphics on Ananka's tomb. And then when he's looking at this case that Professor Norman was studying, he can't read that he needs nine Tana leaves to create this solution, right? He needs... Professor Norman's wife to recall the events of that night, he said nine something. And he's like, that's it. Nine Tana leaves. Like, dude, you're the Egypt expert here. You you were able to read hieroglyphics in a previous scene. You can't figure this out on your own. I don't really fully understand that. <laughs> it keeps Mrs. Norman in the movie, so... Yeah, and, and it just seemed to me like Professor Norman might be more of a history teacher and this guy's like the Egyptologist but still like Professor Norman figured it out. So now they they decide they're going to brew their own Tana solution to lure the mummy back to Professor Norman's but what they don't realize is that he's not attracted to that anymore. He's after Ananka and so he makes his way to Amina's house and kidnaps her and there's like this great shot where she's like I think maybe the Tana ritual is what wakes her up because she's sleeping. I think that's sort of what brings her back to consciousness and then she's sort of sleepwalks out into the yard and I love this shot because she's coming out on the extreme left side of the frame uh Karis is shambling across the lawn on the right side of the frame and then they like meet in the middle love that 
Yeah, that was a nice composition. There's a bunch of wide shots in this. You know, we kind of mentioned it a little earlier with the sort of it follows vibes mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that it gives. And those are that's one of the shots. And I think that is probably the most effective one. They do something a little later where they kind of show them missing each other, like people miss each other. The mob's on one side of the screen and the mummy's uh-huh. on the other. That one, not quite as effective, but I still like the attempt is still worth it. She like sort of passes out again. And so now Karis has to carry her uh, unconscious body back to Yusuf Bey. Fortunately for Amina, this woman that she was staying with sees her get taken and calls Tom immediately, who from now until the end of the movie, it's like Tom and Peanuts. They're like Tintin and Snowy on an adventure trying to rescue the woman. The police are preparing for a mummy that will never arrive but as they are they're preparing this woman that amina was staying with she runs over to them to let them know she was taken she's just sounding the alarm and so now everybody the, like the neighborhood watch tom peanuts the police they're all scrambling to get to amina to get her back i was trying to struggle to think of another movie where these guys all have a huge plan and they're like all right let's do the plan and then someone runs up and is like no 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 like this isn't gonna work like all that work for nothing i find that so funny there's no like intentional humor whatsoever in this movie but there's a lot of kind of just situational humor i guess just because it's just people being people like in that way i guess some of it is well written in that you get a lot of weird society stuff playing out in this movie it's almost comedy of errors like not not laugh out loud funny but definitely like funny once you step back and re-examine it everybody's scrambling we don't have to go like back and forth from scene to scene here because it all it's all happening like all at once it's pretty much we're hiding out we somehow we gotta get back to egypt there's an angry fucking mob after us like we haven't even booked a charter boat or nothing like how are we gonna get i thought maybe there was gonna be a spell that would just transport them back and then like in the middle of all of it john carradine starts like talking to himself yes so there's like a ritual he has to do i guess i mean she's transitioning right so that the white hair is increasingly more white in one scene like it cuts away and then it cuts back to her and her hair is fully white and so she's decomposing and i think what he has to do is do some kind of a ritual that will like secure ananka in this human body before it decomposes so what i gathered was yeah like he had to kill her in order to seal the soul inside of the body i think but then he's like oh i will give her the tana leaves and i'll drink them and together we'll be healthy and live forever and like screw the mummy this is the first time he's seen her face that's the thing with you they just got to gouge the eyes out of these priests man because every (laughs) time they see the reincarnated ananka they get head over heels she's looking like um elsa lanchester at this point because it's she's got like the big white white streaks along each side (laughs) really cool look i mean i'm sure elsa lanchester was going through their mind when they were designing this but i do love that her hair goes full white by the end of this scene and oh and this is the scene where yusuf explains that the birthmark on her wrist is like a symbol of the princess Ananka. So it's like she was destined to be reincarnated as this ancient Egyptian princess. Yeah, she's like an ancestor. Presumably. I don't know if that's explicitly stated, but yeah, I think we can infer based on that information that she's like was always going to become Ananka. Now everybody's sort of descending upon this construction yard or this um, mine, whatever whatever this facility is. Yusef starts to feel the temptation take over. And like you said, he's going to have her 
drink from the Tana a solution. He's going to drink it and they're going to live forever. But Karis is not about to divert from the established plan. This is not the way. He's been through this before, right? Didn't yes. this happen previously where the, like, the high priest gets to the moment and he's like, I got to change the plans. Yeah, they keep calling these audibles. So Karis grabs Yusef Bey and throws him out the window, which is like a 20 to 30 foot drop to his death. And that's just as Tom arrives. And of course, Tom tries to do some battle with the mummy. He gets knocked unconscious. Karis carries Amina slash Ananka out into the wilderness. And as the mob of townspeople and the cops all show up, they revive Tom and they track the mummy into the wilderness and catch him as he is carrying her into this swamp. The dog really lassies it up a lot too. It goes and gets the entire mob, which is huge Uh at this. I think it's all the extras again. All hands on deck. I think in the last Mummy movie, they repurposed footage from Frankenstein to make the mob look bigger. But here, I think it's just everybody they had in the movie. Whether Maybe people who died in previous scenes. They're like, we're going to put you in a different costume. You're going to be part of the mob. Absolutely. I mean, 10 days. I mean, definitely Ed Wood it up, you know, like just like women playing men, like the whole, you know, (laughs) all that kind of thing going on. And then when they get to the swamp, like, man, I'm digging the swamp. I just wish we were here a little longer or earlier or something. I'm getting like swamp thing vibes of like this creature carrying a woman through the muck and stuff. And I was like, this is a good location. Too bad, like, it's almost over, or it is over. Yeah, I mean, the movie's pretty much over at this point. They arrive too late. Karis is already well into the swamp. They can't safely get into that swamp and, and rescue Amina. But um, by this point, we've seen her, as Karis has been carrying her, we see flashes of her hand and her feet, and then finally her face. She's aged, looks like a 100 years in the matter of a few minutes. And so even if they were to rescue her body, I think she's pretty well dead by this point. And so they let her go. They let Karis take her down into the briny depths. And that's the end. And that's the end. I wrote down, what an ending. There's a great line. It's voiceover, I think, of George Zucco from the beginning of the film. The voice of the high priest reminding us, the fate of those who defy the will of the ancient gods shall be a cruel and violent death. The end. The end. I don't remember the next Mummy movie as well as I should, but I am really hoping for like him to rise out of a swamp. Well, I was glad that we even just got a glimpse of Miss Mummy. You know, like I was always saying, like, you know, they should bring Ananka back halfway through like they do in the in the modern ones with Brendan Fraser. That would always be fun to have two mummies, husband and wife, shuffling around, trying to get back to Egypt. I don't know. But I'm wondering, too, is like, are they going to have to stand guard over this swamp like forever? I mean, we know there's a mummy in there somewhere. Are they going to try and fish him out one day? They say, like, Tom, don't go in there. Like, you'll never survive. What does that mean? Is it toxic? I know I'm asking too many questions at the end of the movie, but it's just fun now. At this point, like, I understand what they were going for. It turned out to be a lot more fun. And what it brings that is new is interesting, even if there isn't a lot of it. Yeah, and I stand by what I said at the top of the show, that whatever issues we may have regarding lack of originality and all of that... Or, or continuity issues or whatever. There's a lot of fun to be had here. And the fact that it is so short is why I, I tend to overlook the issues that I have with it. If this thing was like an hour and a half, I would be looking at my watch 
multiple times and 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 that would be no fun at all but this plays like a mummy's greatest hits kind of like wham bam thank you ma'am and then we can go home you know so i really enjoy this one Overall, it's going to rank pretty low in my uh, Universal Monster rankings, but you know, I don't, I don't think that is necessarily representative of the amount of fun I had watching it. Yeah, and and these aren't necessarily meant to be watched the way we are. We're nope. watching them in very rapid succession, you know. So like, we have the other Mummy movies very fresh in our minds. But like, if this was coming out, if we saw this when it was coming out, if we were you know monster kids that knew each other growing up together watching these movies as they came out, by the time we got to this, I'm sure we would have you know eaten it up. And it actually is good for what it is. We also live at a time where home entertainment is like a thing. You know, we have physical media, we have streaming and binging a franchise is a very popular thing. I know I'm not the only person who does it. And like, I know people now who are preparing for the new Mission Impossible. And so they're watching all of the Mission Impossible movies before the new one comes out. And same thing with Jurassic Park. Now that Jurassic Park Dominion is out, we have the the luxury of doing that at this time when, when people couldn't do that in the 1940s. You know, you would maybe catch it on TV. And if it was on TV, you had to sit in front of the TV when it aired or else you missed it. But then it would make the rounds, you know, like I know these movies would come back to theaters for a short period of time. So maybe you could watch them that way, but you're certainly not going to binge a franchise. I think this, these were always meant to be kind of standalone, uh, digestible pieces of entertainment. So I'm glad that there is as much continuity as there is over over the course of three movies already. But they definitely, I think, are meant to be watched by themselves. And if you watch this one by itself, it's a lot more fun than uh, I think its reputation might suggest. Agreed. So I think that's a good time to close out. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Yeah, just briefly, I think this is one of the biggest turnarounds I've ever done from beginning to end of show on <laughs> any of my podcasts that I've appeared on. Like, you know, not that I hated this movie or anything like that, but like I was legitimately sort of bummed that it was nothing new in my eyes when I was watching Mm -hmm. it you know but like after talking about it and thinking about it and and hearing what you had to say about it and coming up with other things uh, to kind of talk about like I end up digging it Mm -hmm. I think I was being too harsh on it I think it tried something very different than what every other movie we've seen so far has done like it does what I think is what I always thought was a very modern sort of structure Mm -hmm. but isn't I come to find out you know Um, and so there was enough here for me to really um, end up enjoying it. You know, like again, like I almost can't put it up against like Son of Dracula or anything like that because there's just such completely mm-hmm, different mm-hmm. types of movies, let alone monsters and stuff. But like it almost plays better than that for what it is, you know? And like I, as much as I want to love Son of Dracula, I still get nightmares from it from time to time. But like I, I think I'll be totally fine with this one existing. So. I'm, I'm good with this one. Yeah. Awesome. Well, with that, I think it's time for us to sink down into our murky swamp. We'll be back on Friday, July 29th to discuss House of Frankenstein, starring Boris Karloff, Lon Chaney Jr., John Carradine, Lionel Atwill, George Zuko, and the great Glenn Strange making his debut as Frankenstein's monster. It's wow. going to be a big one. Nice. Looking forward to it. I don't know if the episode will be huge, but we'll have a lot to talk about with that entire cast. In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at MonsterMadePod, on Instagram and Facebook at the Monsters That Made Us, and you can email us at themonsterstheatmadeus at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Dan Cologne. Mike, where can listeners find you? You can follow me on Twitter at the underscore Mikester or 
cageclub.me for all the other shows that I'm on. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to become a Patreon supporter, you can do so at patreon.com slash the monsters that made us. You can also support the show by giving us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. And let's not forget about our t-shirts on TeePublic. You can find the link for that in our aforementioned Twitter and Instagram bios. For all other things Cage Club related, just head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Stay spooky, everybody. Thank you.